Salutations, listeners. You're listening to another episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast. And I'm your host, Nathan Holloway, your doctor for jazz. And our aim here at the Dr. Jazz Podcast is to cure whatever it is that ails you through the power and the majesty of jazz music. In this week's episode, we're going to be tackling epic... Epic jazz, jazz, masterpieces. That's right. We're actually going to be talking about epic jazz. Everybody uses the word epic nowadays, and it frankly is just sickening. Like, they don't understand what epic means. Epic means huge amount of thought goes into something that has produced a novel-like product. Too many things are, are comic books or short stories, if you want to go for an analogy nowadays. You know, a lot of people don't even have the attention span uh, of a little kitty cat. More or less, the attention span in order to really focus on something that truly is a novel, an epic piece. War and Peace, that is, is epic, Okay. So, that's what we're actually going to be focusing on, is truly, the masterpieces in jazz that are truly epic, and have a lot of thought behind them, some may be a surprise, some may not be, but the only requirement that I've made is that it has to be over 10 minutes, so we've busted this into two, a two-part segment, so this is Epic Jazz Part 1. And we hope to have Epic Jazz Part 2 following soon. So, <clears throat> sit back, go ahead, grab yourself a drink, cup of coffee, glass of wine, whatever. Because it's going to be a while. And I want you to focus, and I want you to enjoy yourself. Some things may be surprises, that's okay. Sit back, enjoy, and just focus on every little nuance. Thank you for listening. Now, let's get to the music. Thank you. 
That is the great Sonny Rollins with his tune, Tenor Madness. Now, why is that epic? Just because it's 12 minutes of music? Hardly. That is actually what you just heard. That is actually the only recorded duo, duet, if you will, between Sonny Rollins and the great John Coltrane. Now, if you don't necessarily understand the significance of that, I'll try to break it down for you. In the 1950s, there were two leading, I don't know if you call it scientists, uh, of the, the tenor saxophone in jazz. And that was John Coltrane and Sonny Rollins. And they had two very distinct styles. Now this kind of plays off the heels of what happened you know, a few years earlier between Coleman Hawkins and Lester Young. But he, th- their style was completely different as well, but there was nothing but mutual respect between Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane. And it was a friendly fire sort of thing. For instance, they would actually call each other on the telephone many, many times a day if they were both practicing on the same day and they didn't have a recording session or, or a gig or whatever. And so John would call Sonny up, and it would go something like this. It would go like, ring, um, hello. Click. So Sonny would sit there, and he'd know immediately if it was just a saxophone playing that it was John, that it was John Coltrane. And so he'd sit there, and he'd think, he'd try to figure it out on his horn. And he would come up with a response. So it was this constant point counterpoint. He called John back. Um, hello. Click. So, and this would go back and forth, and they would kind of co-practice with each other, if you will. So it was really fascinating the, the amount of of friendship between the two, and the amount of respect too, because John Coltrane, he would write songs. You know, called for instance, like Sonny, and it would take like one little riff that he really loved that Sonny Rollins would play for him, and that became the melody for "Like Sonny" by John Coltrane. So this is the only recorded instance in which both of them were in the studio together, John Coltrane and Sonny Rollins on the exact same song, not on the whole record, but on that song. Now. Another thing that makes this very, very, very interesting is the rhythm section. Not to dismiss them or, or, you know, no respect to them. The rhythm section is killer because the rhythm section is actually Miles Davis's rhythm section from the Workin' Steamin' Cookin' Relaxin' albums. Talking about Red Garland on the piano, Paul Chambers, Mr. P.C. himself, on the bass, and Philly Joe Jones on the drums. Now... As if that wasn't important enough, that rhythm section plus John Coltrane and Miles Davis are the same quintet that is the classic hard bop quintet that everybody looks to that recorded Workin', Steamin', Cookin', and Relaxin' for Prestige. Furthermore, I checked out the dates on this. The classic album Workin' with a Miles Davis quintet was recorded on May 11th, 
1956 in Hackensack, New Jersey by Rudy Van Gelder and Bob Weinstock. May 24th, 1956, less than two weeks after this classic album, Working with the Miles Davis Quintet, was recorded. Less than two weeks later, just substitute Sonny Rollins in for Miles Davis and this is the exact same setup and Hackensack, New Jersey with Rudy Van Gelder and Bob Weinstock. And it's just the whole album is phenomenal. But that one song, Tenor Madness, that's Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane. Fabulous stuff. All right, moving on. Another epic jazz tune is we, we must not, we would be remiss if we did not include the very first formal jazz concert. We're talking about 1938, Height of the Swing Era, Carnegie Hall, Benny Goodman, and the first integrated band in jazz music, having blacks and whites in the exact same band. You have Benny Goodman, you have Gene Krupa, you have Teddy Wilson, you have Lionel Hampton, and in fact, Benny invited many of Count Basie's stars to be on stage with him as well. So, the one number that everybody remembers from that concert, this is Sing, Sing, Sing. Enjoy.
right, that's Benny Goodman and his big band live at Carnegie Hall 1938, the very first jazz concert at Carnegie Hall. And folklore has it that Benny was a little spooked that it would ruin his reputation in his career because he was trying to play quote-unquote hot music, meaning jazz music, uh, at a place like Carnegie Hall where they would have nothing but quote-unquote long hair music, meaning classical music or concert music like that. And supposedly folklore has it that Benny was spooked because of that and that kind of spread to a couple members of the band and when they played Sing, 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 Gene Krupa just kind of said, you know, to hell with that. We're going to play the way we play. And so he beat the skins a little harder on the drums. He was trying to goose a couple of people with some of the rhythms. And he's kind of like, you know, raising his eyebrows. So, like I said, the folklore has it that Gene Krupa kind of instigated that into this huge success that it became. And that tune was the longest jam tune. That tune was kind of the focus and um, the whole the middle point of everybody's attention. Like, when you left that concert, everybody was still talking about Sing, Sing, Sing and all the soloists and that little um, musical conversation between Benny and, and Krupa and and then just Krupa killing it after that piano solo with all the 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 rhythmic drumming. So, which is wonderful. And they tried to recreate that as best they could in the Gene, I'm sorry, in the Benny Goodman story with the real actors, Gene Krupa playing himself, Harry James playing himself, Teddy Wilson playing himself, et cetera, et cetera, Lionel Hampton. So that was great, you know. Um, and it was really important to broadcast that jazz could be quite energetic and awesome. Um, so this next tune is that's a great segue into this next tune is bright moments by the wonderful rasan roland kirk speaking of interesting and exciting rasan roland kirk if you don't know is the blind jazz musician who could play like three instruments in his mouth at once you know three different saxophones and things like that um he could also play the flute the nose flute the slide whistle all of these things he could circular breathe for like hold a note for 20 minutes without inhaling it's incredible and he wrote many, 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 many great tunes and was always looking back with just an immense amount of respect to jazz history, you know, um, dedicating songs to Fats Waller, Paul Robeson, you know, Horace Silver, all these guys. And he loved Ellington. He played with Mingus. Um, yeah. So anyway, he wrote this next tune, which is Bright Moments. It's one of the uh, epic pieces of jazz in, in my mind, and it's one of my absolute favorites. And uh, it reminds me of something that my friend Tom Halliday always said. Every time he you'd see him and you'd visit with him and you'd leave, he'd just put his hand up and instead of saying, take care or adios or see you later, he'd just say, bright moments, Nathan, bright moments. So this one goes out to Tom. Bright moments, Tom.
Bright moments, bright moments, bright moments, bright moments, bright moments, bright moments, bright moments.
is for all the very wonderful people in the universe that has never known anything about bright moments. So check it out. Rasan Roland Kirk with Bright Moments off of his album, Bright Moments. And this is a good time, I guess, to plug this, you know, as good as any. There is a new documentary on DVD on Blu-ray out about the life and the work of Rasan Roland Kirk. And it's called The Case of the Three-Sided Dream. It's a fantastic documentary, and they um, they interview, I believe it. her name is pronounced Dorothean Kirk. It's uh, Rasan's wife, and she talks a lot about Rasan's work and his life and all the things he was going through and coming back off of a stroke in order to play and how he had to reconfigure his saxophones and and relearn how to play and it's a really great story and it shows just how much intestinal fortitude Kirk had in his lifetime so a great documentary the case of the three-sided dream up now we've got one of my favorite favorite epic jazz tunes this is Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, and it's one of my like top ten Art Blakey tunes of all time. And incidentally, it turns out that this is actually Joe Lovano, the great tenor saxophonist from Cleveland. It is actually his favorite Art Blakey record of all time. So here is Free for All by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers.
Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, Free For All. That, oh, God bless, man. That is just pure power. I mean, the whole track is just pure power. I could just see, I can close my eyes and I can just see Art Blakey with that, like, cross stick method and those huge press rolls, you know, just getting louder and louder and louder. And, oh, my God. From the album Free For All. This the title track, Free For All. By Wayne Shorter, who was just blowing his nose through the tenor saxophone. I mean, just killing it. And you also had Freddie Hubbard on the trumpet, Curtis Fuller on the trombone, Cedar Walton on the piano, Reggie Workman on the bass, and of course Art Blakey on the drums. Up next, one of my absolute favorite tracks by a legend. And he's just he, he oh, there's not enough words to describe Dexter Gordon. Dexter Gordon is the epitome of taste, nuance, sophistication on the tennis saxophone. And I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to say that oh, I've known about this track for years. Well, No, the very first time I I, ever heard this track was from the Ken Burns documentary Jazz, you know, that featured Wynton Marsalis and all those guys. Um, And I'm not getting into that debate because I know there there are people who who live, breathe, and and die by that documentary, and there are people that cannot stand it. But one thing I think everybody can agree on is that the music – in that it's just fantastic and so even to a guy who who loved jazz like me um it got to i think it was episode 10 a masterpiece by midnight and it opens up with dexter gordon's uh composition tanya and that solo that dexter takes is just it's he's like the dostoevsky of the tenor saxophone, I mean, he's not just writing short sentences. He's writing these long, beautiful, drawn-out lines, just line after line after line, you know. And oh, I was just mesmerized when I when I saw this, you know. On the, I, I couldn't even focus on what they were saying afterwards. I'm just like, I, I was like searching for how do I get a copy of Tanya by Dexter Gordon, you know, and. I found out that it came from his Blue Note album, One Flight Up. And later on, the great uh, vocalese artist, Kurt Elling, actually did, uh, he he penned words to Dexter's solo in this song. And I think he called it Tanya Jean. So we're not going to listen to Kurt Elling's version. We're listening to the original. And it's just, it just kind of simmers, man. I mean, it's just, it's gorgeous. So, enough of me talking about it. Let's get to it. Here's long, tall Dexter Gordon himself from his album, One Flight Up, on Blue Note Records. Here is Tanya.
Dexter Gordon with Tanya from his album One Flight Up. Recorded in Paris in 1964. Dexter Gordon on the tenor saxophone. Donald Byrd on the trumpet. Kenny Drew on the piano. Art Taylor on the drums. And the fabulous Niels Henning Ersted Peterson on the bass. Just a fantastic album. And there's only four tracks on the whole thing. But Tanya... Written by Donald Byrd, actually. Um, just kills it, man. That is just... Dexter owned that tune. It's just... Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Beautiful lines. <sighs> Truly uh, an example of epic jazz. An epic jazz masterpiece. Well, a different epic jazz masterpiece and a completely different turn of events. This next track is by the keyboardist extraordinaire, Chick Corea. And it's from his 1970s output after he had already recorded with Miles Davis. And in the 1970s, it seemed as if Chick was on a concept album kick. So he'd have one album that was called The Leprechaun, and it would have these hyper-visual images on the front where he was almost like this uh, leprechaunish, fairy-like kind of creature. And he was uh, talking to like little fairies or little nymphs, and... Every song seemed to be about that, like Imp's Welcome, you know what I mean? And the Pixieland Rag and all these other tunes, you know? And then there would be another album that would be entitled uh, My Spanish Heart, in which he dressed up like a matador on the front, and every song was either like a Spanish fantasy or a rumba song, like Armando's Rumba, or, or something to that nature. My Spanish Heart, the actual title track. Uh, and then there was um, another album called The Mad Hatter. And we all know that Chick loves fantasy, you know. Um, hence all the, the space titles from Return to Forever. You know, Earth Juice, Song to the Pharaoh Kings, you know, all these things like that. Return, Hymn of the Seventh Galaxy. Um, but on The Mad Hatter... He plays the Mad Hatter. He has on the cover like uh, the top hat, you know, and he's got he's holding a cup of tea, and he's got like a pocket watch. And every title song or every song from the, that that album, it, every title seems to be something to do with Alice in Wonderland. There is a track called Humpty Dumpty. There's another track called um, Tweedledee, Tweedledum, The Woods. Um, the Mad Hatter Rhapsody, you know, in which he played with Herbie Hancock, uh, and Hancock made a cameo on that that track. But this one is, to me, a very hyper dramatic piece, and it comes from that album. And that's what we're about to listen to is a track called "Dear Alice." 
that was Dear Alice, a truly epic composition and masterful playing on Chick Corea's part from his album, The Mad Hatter. And kind of going back to what I was saying before we heard the track, uh, I definitely recommend all of, of Chick's albums, especially the, the concept albums from the 70s. They're still some of my favorite albums in all of jazz, uh, especially My Spanish Heart and The Mad Hatter. Leprechaun's really good too, but The Mad Hatter and My Spanish Heart are, I don't know if they're just personal preferences or what, but they really are fantastic pieces. This The whole album, you know, just listening to, the, sitting down and listening from beginning to end. So, but up next in our episode of epic jazz masterpieces is another keyboardist who is still to this day much like uh, Chick Corea and is friends with Chick Corea too uh, still very much an institution of thought and improvisation today we're talking about Keith Jarrett and Keith Jarrett love him or hate him is truly one of the first to just sit down on his instrument without any kind of preconceived notions necessarily and say, I'm just going to improv. And wherever it goes is where it goes. And if I don't like necessarily the direction, then I'll cut it short. I'll find some kind of way to end it. But And we'll try again on, on a next track. And that was kind of the premise for the Cone Concert and it was a a genius piece. You know, the whole album is, is genius. And he has many other solo albums. But one of the things that he, he turned to doing in, in, in the 80s is he formed his trio, which is the Keith Jarrett Trio, uh, which features Keith on the piano as well as Jack DeJanette on the drums and Gary Peacock on the bass. And the empathy that those three have it's beyond just finishing each other's sentences musically they've been playing with each other for 30 something years now and it, it's just it, it's just fascinating and and I can say this because I've actually seen the Keith Jarrett trio live I saw them in Atlanta Georgia at Symphony Hall and just was mesmerized about how they're just listening so intently to each other and that kind of focus that kind of beauty that kind of epic jazz if you really want to say that is not found every day and so with saying that I wanted to pay tribute to the Keith Jarrett Trio playing some of their standards. And this comes from the album Still Live. So it's live. And this is Dijonette, Peacock, and Jarrett playing a gorgeous rendition of My Funny Valentine.
All right. The Keith Jarrett Trio. God, that was just beautiful. Keith Jarrett, masterful skills on the piano. So lyrical. Gary Peacock on the bass. Jack DeJanette on the drums. Just... Mm. And it's from the album Still Live. It's a two-CD set. It's just fantastic music all the way through. And if you want to see where all these epic jazz masterpieces come from, don't forget to check out the website. That's Dr. Jazz Podcast. That's D-R-J-A-Z-Z-Podcast.wordpress.com. You can check out all the album art so that you know what you're getting and that you don't misorder something if you want to go and support these artists' wonderful music. Up next, the wonderful Duke Ellington. Now, a lot of people sit there and say, well, what epic piece are you going to pick by Ellington? Are you going to pick something like Adlib on Nippon? Or are you going to pick, you know, come Sunday, the, you know, are you going to pick something from Black, Brown, and Beige? You know, for something from one of his suites, like the New Orleans suite, you know, the Far East suite. The Latin American suite, you know, what 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 are you, you going to what's he going to pick? I'm going to pick the song that basically relaunched Duke Ellington's career. Talking about Newport 1956. The Newport Jazz Festival. Duke Ellington, at this point in time in his career, he had already been, he was known as a household name, but he was a has-been. It's like, oh, Ellington's music, yes, I, I love, you know, Solitude or Mood Indigo or It Don't Mean a Thing If Any Got That Swing or, you know, Don't Get Around Much Anymore, Take the A Train. Okay, see, he had already had the whole Cotton Club days behind him. He'd already toured around the world. He'd already found Billy Strayhorn. He'd already played songs like Take the A-Train and Chelsea Bridge, all these things. What's left to do? He's already had Ben Webster, you know, as a soloist. He's already, you know, he's already, he's, he's already done it all. So at this point in time, I mean, he's not operating a trio here. He's operating a big band. So how, how in God's name do you pay 16, 20 musicians get tour buses to go around, you know, the country, or planes to go around the world, how, how, how do you do it? Well, you need a spark. And that's exactly what Paul Gonzalez did when he took, I believe it's 26 courses on diminuendo and crescendo in blue live at Newport and some voluptuous blonde decided to dance as the music moved her and that and the excitement that that caused is what relaunched Duke Ellington's career luckily there was somebody there recording everything so I bring to you the song that relaunched Duke Ellington's career, made him again an in vogue name 
in households across America from the 50s into the end of his career. His 50-year career, I might add. So, here is Duke Ellington and his orchestra live at Newport, Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue, featuring Paul Gonzalez.
Gonzalez with his 27 chorus solo. I was off by one. I said 26. Duke Ellington and his orchestra live at Newport, 1956. They actually had um, originally out a, a one CD set on the one CD version of this, in which I think it has like three or four tracks. And then they later came out with a complete edition, which is two CD set, and and that is by far the superior of the two. Um, so I recommend getting the two CD set. Don't be fooled into getting the one. Although, if you love that track, which is the epic jazz masterpiece from that album, it is on the one CD set too. If you don't care about the other stuff, go for the one. It's probably cheaper. But I recommend the two. It's, as a completist, I gotta have it. Once again, Duke Ellington, it relaunched his career. He was taking gigs that was just scaling below at ice rinks and roller skating rinks and things like that, and instead of these huge concert halls where he belonged, and that relaunched his career into getting back to the concert halls that he belongs to play in and touring all around the world and presenting his wonderful music. That is diminuendo in blue and crescendo in blue 
And the 27 chorus solo was actually uh, supposed to be a filler solo in between both of those pieces, and it turned out to be the feature. So there you go. Up next, we've got Miles Davis. Now, I must admit, this is probably the hardest tune to choose because Miles has so many lengthy, truly epic masterpieces to choose from. So I decided to go with a surprise. I mean, you could choose So What?, you could choose All Blues. You could choose the Concerto de Ranues from Sketches of Spain. You could choose Bitches Brew. You could choose something like Maisha from Get Up With It. You could choose uh, My Funny Valentine from the 1964 concert. There's just so much miles to choose from. It's difficult. But. I decided to go with something that truly resonated with me from the very first time I, I, I ever heard this song. And it, it's a special tune. And it wasn't released for an awfully long time. Um, yeah, so I'm just, words fall short, so I'm not even going to try. Here is Miles Davis.
Miles Davis. Circle in the Round. From his album Circle in the Round that was released in 1979 when he was quote-unquote in retirement. It was recorded December 4th, 1967, and I'll read you the little snippet from the inner liner notes here. The jewel in this collection, Circle in the Round, links three luminous spheres in the galaxy of Miles Davis, sketches of Spain, Nefertiti, and In a Silent Way. Three of my favorites, by the way. Miles' melancholic, keening, chromatic theme, the mesmeric drone and trill of Joe Beck's gimbri-like guitar, and the skipping 12-8 cadence recall Miles' Spanish period. The bleak, slightly dissonant 26-bar line, Tony Williams' slashing and surging triplets and rolls, listen also to his eerie rattlings on the drum shells. And the crescendos and decrescendos throughout are the so-called repetition idiom forged by the second great Miles Davis quintet in the late 60s. Finally, the spacey mysterioso horn solos and the twinkling vibes-like timbres of Herbie Hancock's Celesta point towards 1969's In a Silent Way and Beyond. Yet for all of its familiar sonorities save for the guitar. Circle in the Round is not quite like anything else recorded by Miles before or since. A miraculous performance. And on that track, as we mentioned right there, is Miles Davis on the trumpet. He's also playing chimes and bells. Wayne Shorter on the tenor saxophone. Herbie Hancock on the celesta. Ron Carter on the bass. Tony Williams on the drums, and Joe Beck on the electric guitar. Truly haunting piece. It's one of my favorite Miles pieces. I heard it, and within two minutes, I was hooked. It's just like, that's one of my favorite Miles pieces. Right up there with, you know, um, the Concerto de Ranuez, and with So What, and jean Ah, oh, just beautiful pieces so but that's one that i would truly consider an epic jazz masterpiece that not a lot of people know about so there you go if you haven't ever heard it you heard it now on the dr jazz podcast well we got one more to wrap up for you and i think it's a perfectly fitting ending it's charles mingus and he is giving a narration to this piece that he wrote um, called Scenes in the City. Hope you dig it. Well, here I am. Right back where I was yesterday. The day before and the day before that. Sitting on a high bar stool, holding my dreams up to the sound of jazz music. I live uptown. Why, I don't exactly know, because I'm always downtown. And it seems I'm always with the blues. I talk to myself in public places and hum jazz tunes. I love jazz. But soon I have to make it uptown to that old furnished room of mine. I guess that's why I stall so long downtown. I like the cafe bars down here. 
especially the ones across the street from the theater. I once wanted to be an actor. This is the closest I'll ever get to it. I couldn't even afford a seat next to the ceiling. That's jazz music you're listening to. Now, I've got 15 cents between me and starvation, and I'll probably have to walk it all the way uptown because I'm living on that music again. You see, I love jazz music. That's pretty music, boy. Pretty. But it ain't really pretty. It ain't like girls in the magazines. It's beautiful. It's terribly beautiful. Say like a woman you might have been with last night. Or say an hour ago. Sad, huh? Sort of reminds me of that old building I live in. And my room looking out over Harlem's waters. Now catch this. Dig. died a hundred times during the night. And I wonder about that, Jack. Yeah, I wonder. Like how I ever got here. 
because I don't have any plans to die in that fast. Madam, may I please get in there soon? May I please get in there? I have to wash up too. Oh, woman, come on out of there and let me in. I guess I'm the only man in the world who wakes up to jazz music in the morning. Well, I guess I can't exactly say why, but I find it soft, like a hymn. I had to prove that to my mother when I was back home and I woke up in the morning time digging sound. Moms didn't dig. She just didn't go for it. Bird. Bud. Miles. J.J. Jimmy Blanton and Max she couldn't see it morning, afternoon, night or any time that is until I played her some monk one night late round about midnight time I played her some monk Thelonious that is and now mom spends many of her nights in Tunisia and somewhere along the line, the blues walked in.
started up them third floor steps, stumbled, and decided to fall up, not down. Yeah, early in the morning time, late in the night time, I'm with the blues. And sometimes I'm laughing and having myself a ball. And that's why Bob keeps telling me that there ain't no blues up there in my old room. That sometimes it dances and struts like a woman, and skips and hops like children playing ball. Maybe that's why I always manage a change once in a while. And with the blues, whether I like it or not, I love the idea of living. And sometimes it's tough, man. I wonder why it's so tough for me. And I don't mean tough like when Miles is grooving with his horn. I mean like when I can't make that morning meal. When I'm ducking the landlady. When everything I have is in hock. Like when I think, when I think about all the places I haven't been and won't ever likely get to. But I think maybe I will. Yeah, that's the way I think. Like that song says, the sun's gonna shine in my back door someday, all the way up to the bottom of my stomach and up again. That's the way I feel. Charles Mingus, Scenes in the City, from his album A Modern Jazz Symposium of Music and Poetry with Charles Mingus. Ah, I just love that. I love the fact that he was actually given like a daily outlook and how there's the struggle is real, you know, for jazz musicians who... You know, like myself, love to wake up in the morning digging sounds, you know, and it's hard to convince, you know, your mom to dig Thelonious Monk. So, you know, the struggle is real. Mingus knows it. So, well, this draws conclusion to our episode. Thank you so very much for listening. Remember to check out the website, Dr. Jazz Podcast, D R J A Z Podcast, all one word, dot WordPress. Dot com, and 
hopefully you've dug and enjoyed these last 10 tracks. It's only been 10 tracks. But we have one more installment coming up for you. It's part. This is part one of two of epic jazz masterpieces here on the Dr. Jazz Podcast. So until next time, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Y'all be good now. Cousin Jazz, we trust. <laughs>